Part Two, Gorgias, by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Johnson. What is the art of rhetoric? says Paulus. Not an art at all, replies Socrates, but a thing which in your book you affirm to have created art. Paulus asks, What thing? And Socrates answers, An experience or routine of making a sort of delight or gratification. But is not rhetoric a fine thing? I have not yet told you what rhetoric is. Will you ask me another question? What is cookery? What is cookery? An experience or routine of making a sort of delight or gratification. Then they are the same, or rather, fall under the same class, and rhetoric has still to be distinguished from cookery. What is rhetoric? asks Paulus once more, a part of a not very creditable whole which may be termed flattery, is the reply. But what part? A shadow of a part of politics. This, as might be expected, is wholly unintelligible, both to Gorgias and Paulus. And, in order to explain his meaning to them, Socrates draws a distinction between shadows or appearances and realities. E.g., there is real health of body or soul, and the appearance of them. Real arts and sciences, and the simulations of them. Now the soul and body have two arts waiting upon them. First the art of politics, which attends on the soul, having a legislative part and a judicial part, and another art attending on the body, which has no generic name, but may also be described as having two divisions, one of which is medicine, and the other gymnastic. Corresponding with these four arts or sciences, there are four shams, or simulations of them, mere experiences, as they may be termed, because they give no reason of their own existence. The art of dressing up is the sham or simulation of gymnastic, the art of cookery of medicine. Rhetoric is the simulation of justice and sophistic of legislation. They may be summed up in an arithmetical formula. Tiring is to gymnastic, as cookery is to medicine, as sophistic is to legislation, and cookery is to medicine, as rhetoric is to the art of justice. And this is the true scheme of them, but when measured only by the gratification which they procure, they become jumbled together and return to their aboriginal chaos. Socrates apologizes for the length of his speech, which was necessary to the explanation of the subject, and begs Paulus not unnecessarily to retaliate on him. Do you mean to say that the rhetoricians are esteemed flatterers? They are not esteemed at all. Why have they not great power, and can they not do whatever they desire? 
they have no power, and they only do what they think best, and never what they desire, for they never attain the true object of desire, which is the good. As if you, Socrates, would not envy the possessor of despotic power, who can imprison, exile, kill, any one whom he pleases. But Socrates replies that he has no wish to put any one to death. He who kills another, even justly, is not to be envied, and he who kills him unjustly is to be pitied. It is better to suffer than to do injustice. He does not consider that going about with a dagger and putting men out of the way or setting a house on fire is real power. To this Paulus assents, on the ground that such acts would be punished, but he is still of opinion that evildoers, if they are unpunished, may be happy enough. He instances Archelaus, son of Perdiccas, the usurper of Macedonia. Does not Socrates think him happy? Socrates would like to know more about him. He cannot pronounce even the great king to be happy unless he knows his mental and moral condition. Paulus explains that Archelaus was a slave, being the son of a woman who was the slave of Alcetas, brother of Perdiccas, king of Macedon. And he, by every species of crime, first murdering his uncle and then his cousin and half-brother, obtained the kingdom. This was very wicked, and yet all the world, including Socrates, would like to have his place. Socrates dismisses the appeal to numbers. Paulus, if he will, may summon all the rich men of Athens, Nicias and his brothers, Aristocrates, the house of Pericles, or any other great family. This is the kind of evidence which is adduced in courts of justice, where truth depends upon numbers. But Socrates employs proof of another sort. His appeal is to one witness only, that is to say, the person with whom he is speaking. Him he will convict out of his own mouth. And he is prepared to show, after his manner, that Archelaus cannot be a wicked man and yet happy. The evildoer is deemed happy if he escapes, and miserable if he suffers punishment. But Socrates thinks him less miserable if he suffers than if he escapes. Paulus is of opinion that such a paradox as this hardly deserves refutation, and is at any rate sufficiently refuted by the fact. Socrates has only to compare the lot of the successful tyrant who is the envy of the world and of the wretch who, having been detected in a criminal attempt against the state, is crucified or burnt to death. Socrates replies that if they are both criminal, they are both miserable, but that the unpunished is the more miserable of the two. At this Paulus laughs outright, which leads Socrates to remark that laughter is a new species of refutation. Paulus replies that he is already refuted, for if he will take the votes of the company, he will find that no one agrees with him. To this Socrates rejoins that he is not a public man, and, referring to his own conduct at the trial of the generals 
after the battle of Arginusae, is unable to take the suffrages of any company, as he had shown on a recent occasion. He can only deal with one witness at a time, and that is the person with whom he is arguing. But he is certain that in the opinion of any man to do is worse than to suffer evil. Paulus, though he will not admit this, is ready to acknowledge that to do evil is considered the more foul or dishonorable of the two. But what is fair and what is foul? Whether the terms are applied to bodies, colors, figures, laws, habits, studies, must they not be defined with reference to pleasure and utility? Paulus assents to this latter doctrine, and is easily persuaded that the fouler of two things must exceed either in pain or in hurt. But the doing cannot exceed the suffering of evil in pain, and therefore must exceed in hurt. Thus doing is proved by the testimony of Paulus himself to be worse or more hurtful than suffering. There remains the other question. Is a guilty man better off when he is punished or when he is unpunished? Socrates replies that what is done justly is suffered justly. If the act is just, the effect is just. If to punish is just, to be punished is just, and therefore fair, and therefore beneficent. And the benefit is that the soul is improved. There are three evils from which a man may suffer, and which affect him in a state, body, and soul. These are poverty, disease, injustice, and the foulest of these is injustice. The evil of the soul, because that brings the greatest hurt, and there are three arts which heal these evils, trading, medicine, justice, and the fairest of these is justice. Happy is he who has never committed injustice, and happy in the second degree he who has been healed by punishment. And therefore the criminal should himself go to the judge, as he would to the physician, and purge away his crime. Rhetoric will enable him to display his guilt in proper colors, and to sustain himself and others in enduring the necessary penalty. And similarly, if a man has an enemy, he will desire not to punish him, but that he shall go unpunished and become worse and worse, taking care only that he does no injury to himself. These are at least conceivable uses of the art, and no others have been discovered by us. Here Callicles, who has been listening in silent amazement, asks Chirophon whether Socrates is in earnest, and on receiving the assurance that he is, proceeds to ask the same question of Socrates himself. For if such doctrines are true, life must have been turned upside down, and all of us are doing the opposite of what we ought to be doing. Socrates replies in a style of playful irony that before men can understand one another, they must have some common feeling, and such a community of feeling exists between himself and Callicles, for both of them are lovers and they have both a pair of loves. The beloved of Callicles are the Athenian Demos 
and Demos, the son of Pyrolampes. The beloved of Socrates are Alcibiades and philosophy. The peculiarity of Callicles is that he can never contradict his loves. He changes as his Demos changes in all his opinions. He watches the countenance of both his loves and repeats their sentiments. And if any one is surprised at his sayings and doings, the explanation of them is that he is not a free agent, but must always be imitating his two loves. And this is the explanation of Socrates' peculiarities also. He is always repeating what his mistress, philosophy, is saying to him, who unlike his other love, Alcibiades, is ever the same, ever true. Callicles must refute her, or he will never be at unity with himself. And discord in life is far worse than the discord of musical sounds. Callicles answers that Gorgias was overthrown because, as Paulus said, in compliance with popular prejudice, he had admitted that if his pupil did not know justice, the rhetorician must teach him and Paulus has been similarly entangled, because his modesty led him to admit that to suffer is more honourable than to do injustice. By custom, yes, but not by nature, says Callicles. And Socrates is always playing between the two points of view, and putting one in the place of the other. In this very argument, what Paulus only meant in a conventional sense has been affirmed by him to be a law of nature. For convention says that injustice is dishonorable, but nature says that might is right, and we are always taming down the nobler spirits among us to the conventional level. But sometimes a great man will rise up and reassert his original rights, trampling underfoot all our formularies, and then the light of natural justice shines forth. Pindar says, Law the king of all, does violence with high hand. As is indeed proved by the example of Heracles, who drove off the oxen of Geryon and never paid for them. This is the truth, Socrates, as you will be convinced, if you leave philosophy and pass on to the real business of life. A little philosophy is an excellent thing. Too much is the ruin of a man. He who has not passed his metaphysics before he has grown up to manhood will never know the world. Philosophers are ridiculous when they take to politics, and I dare say that politicians are equally ridiculous when they take to philosophy. Every man, as Euripides says, is fondest of that in which he is best. Philosophy is graceful in youth, like the lisp of infancy and should be cultivated as a part of education. But when a grown-up man lisps or studies philosophy, I should like to beat him. None of those over-refined natures ever come to any good. They avoid the busy haunts of men, and skulk in corners, whispering to a few admiring youths, and never giving utterance to any noble sentiments. For you, Socrates, I have a regard, and therefore I say to you, as Zephus says to Amphion in the play, that you have a noble soul 
disguised in a puerile exterior. And I would have you consider the danger which you and other philosophers incur, for you would not know how to defend yourself if anyone accused you in a law court. There you would stand, with gaping mouth and dizzy brain, and might be murdered, robbed, boxed on the ears with impunity. Take my advice, then, and get a little common sense. Leave to others these frivolities. Walk in the ways of the wealthy, and be wise. Socrates professes to have found in Callicles the philosopher's touchstone, and he is certain that any opinion in which they both agree must be the very truth. Callicles has all the three qualities which are needed in a critic, knowledge, goodwill, frankness. Gorgias and Paulus, although learned men, were too modest, and their modesty made them contradict themselves. But Callicles is well educated, and he is not too modest to speak out. Of this he has already given proof, and his goodwill is shown both by his own profession and by his giving the same caution against philosophy to Socrates, which Socrates remembers hearing him give long ago to his own clique of friends. He will pledge himself to retract any error into which he may have fallen, and which Callicles may point out. But he would like to know first of all what he and Pindar mean by natural justice. Do they suppose that the rule of justice is the rule of the stronger or of the better? There is no difference. Then are not the many superior to the one, and the opinions of the many better? And their opinion is that justice is equality, and that to do is more dishonorable than to suffer wrong. And as they are the superior or stronger, this opinion of theirs must be in accordance with natural as well as conventional justice. Why will you continue splitting words? Have I not told you that the superior is the better? But what do you mean by the better? Tell me that, and please to be a little milder in your language. If you do not wish to drive me away, I mean the worthier, the wiser. You mean to say that one man of sense ought to rule over ten thousand fools? Yes, that is my meaning. Ought the physician, then, to have a larger share of meats and drinks? Or the weaver to have more coats? Or the cobbler larger shoes? Or the farmer more seed? You are always saying the same thing, Socrates. Yes and on the same subjects too, but you are never saying the same things, for first you define the superior to be the stronger, and then the wiser, and now something else. What do you mean? I mean men of political ability, who ought to govern and to have more than the governed. Then themselves, what do you mean? I mean to say that every man is his own governor. I see that you mean those dolts, the temperate, but my doctrine is that a man should let his desires grow and take the means of satisfying them. To the many this is impossible, and therefore they combine to prevent him. But if he is a king and has power, how base would he be in submitting to them to invite the common herd to be lord over him, when he might have the enjoyment of all things. For the truth is, Socrates, 
that luxury and self-indulgence are virtue and happiness. All the rest is mere talk. Socrates compliments Callicles on his frankness in saying what other men only think. According to his view, those who want nothing are not happy. Why, says Callicles, if they were, stones and the dead would be happy. Socrates, in reply, is led into a half-serious, half-comic vein of reflection. Who knows, as Euripides says, whether life may not be death, and death life. Nay, there are philosophers who maintain that even in life we are dead, and that the body, soma, is the tomb, sema, of the soul. And some ingenious Sicilian has made an allegory in which he represents fools as the uninitiated, who are supposed to be carrying water to a vessel which is full of holes, in a similarly holy sieve, and this sieve is their own soul. The idea is fanciful, but nevertheless is a figure of a truth which I want to make you acknowledge, viz. that the life of contentment is better than the life of indulgence. Are you disposed to admit that? Far otherwise. Then hear another parable. The life of self-contentment and self-indulgence may be represented respectively by two men who are filling jars with streams of wine, honey, milk. The jars of the one are sound, and the jars of the other leaky. The first fills his jars, and has no more trouble with them. The second is always filling them and would suffer extreme misery if he desisted. Are you of the same opinion still? Yes, Socrates, and the figure expresses what I mean. For true pleasure is a perpetual stream, flowing in and flowing out, to be hungry and always eating, to be thirsty and always drinking, and to have all the other desires and to satisfy them that, as I admit, is my idea of happiness and to be itching and always scratching? I do not deny that there may be happiness even in that. And to indulge unnatural desires, if they are abundantly satisfied? Callicles is indignant at the introduction of such topics, but he is reminded by Socrates that they are introduced not by him, but by the maintainer of the identity of pleasure and good. Will Callicles still maintain this? Yes, for the sake of consistency, he will. The answer does not satisfy Socrates, who fears that he is losing his touchstone. A profession of seriousness on the part of Callicles reassures him, and they proceed with the argument. Pleasure and good are the same, but knowledge and courage are not the same either with pleasure or good, or with one another. Socrates disproves the first of these statements by showing that two opposites cannot coexist, but must alternate with one another. To be well and ill together is impossible. But pleasure and pain are simultaneous, and the cessation of them is simultaneous, e.g. in the case of drinking and thirsting, whereas good and evil are not simultaneous, and do not cease simultaneously and therefore pleasure cannot be the same as good. Callicles has already lost his temper, 
and can only be persuaded to go on by the interposition of Gorgias. Socrates, having already guarded against objections by distinguishing courage and knowledge from pleasure and good, proceeds. The good are good by the presence of good, and the bad are bad by the presence of evil. And the brave and wise are good, and the cowardly and foolish are bad. And he who feels pleasure is good, and he who feels pain is bad and both feel pleasure and pain in nearly the same degree, and sometimes the bad man or coward in a greater degree. Therefore the bad man or coward is as good as the brave or maybe even better. Callicles endeavors now to avert the inevitable absurdity by affirming that he and all mankind admitted some pleasures to be good and others bad. The good are the beneficial, and the bad are the hurtful, and we should choose the one and avoid the other. But this, as Socrates observes, is a return to the old doctrine of himself and Paulus, that all things should be done for the sake of the good. Callicles assents to this, and Socrates, finding that they are agreed in distinguishing pleasure from good, returns to his old division of empirical habits, or shams, or flatteries, which study pleasure only, and the arts which are concerned with the higher interests of soul and body. Does Callicles agree to this division? Callicles will agree to anything, in order that he may get through the argument. Which of the arts, then, are flatteries? Flute-playing, harp-playing, choral exhibitions, the dithyrambics of Canisius, are all equally condemned on the ground that they give pleasure only, and Meles, the harp-player, who was the father of Canasius, failed even in that. The stately muse of tragedy is bent upon pleasure, and not upon improvement. Poetry in general is only a rhetorical address to a mixed audience of men, women, and children. And the orators are very far from speaking with a view to what is best. Their way is to humor the assembly, as if they were children. Callicles replies that this is only true of some of them. Others have a real regard for their fellow citizens. Granted, then there are two species of oratory, the one a flattery, another which has a real regard for the citizens. But where are the orators among whom you find the latter? Callicles admits that there are none remaining, but there were such in the days when Themistocles, Cimon, Miltiades, and the great Pericles were still alive. Socrates replies that none of these were true artists, setting before themselves the duty of bringing order out of disorder. The good man and true orator has a settled design running through his life, to which he conforms all his words and actions. He desires to implant justice and eradicate injustice, to implant all virtue and eradicate all vice in the minds of his citizens. He is the physician who will not allow the sick man to indulge his appetites with a variety of meats and drinks, but insists on his exercising self-restraint. And this is good for the soul, and better than the unrestrained indulgence which Callicles was recently approving. Here Callicles, who had been with difficulty brought to this point, turns restive, and suggests 
that Socrates shall answer his own questions. Then, says Socrates, one man must do for two. And though he had hoped to have given Callicles an Amphion in return for his Zethus, he is willing to proceed. At the same time, he hopes that Callicles will correct him if he falls into error. He recapitulates the advantages which he has already won. The pleasant is not the same as the good. Callicles and I are agreed about that. But pleasure is to be pursued for the sake of the good, and the good is that of which the presence makes us good. We and all things good have acquired some virtue or other, and virtue, whether of body or soul, of things or persons, is not attained by accident, but is due to order and harmonious arrangement, and the soul which has order is better than the soul which is without order, and is therefore temperate, and is therefore good, and the intemperate is bad, and he who is temperate is also just and brave and pious, and has attained the perfection of goodness and therefore of happiness, and the intemperate whom you approve is the opposite of all this, and is wretched. He therefore who would be happy must pursue temperance and avoid intemperance, and if possible escape the necessity of punishment, but if he have done wrong he must endure punishment. In this way states and individuals should seek to attain harmony, which as the wise tell us is the bond of heaven and earth, of gods and men. Callicles has never discovered the power of geometrical proportion in both worlds. He would have men aim at disproportion and excess. But if he be wrong in this, and if self-control is the true secret of happiness, then the paradox is true that the only use of rhetoric is in self-accusation. And Paulus was right in saying that to do wrong is worse than to suffer wrong. And Gorgias was right in saying that the rhetorician must be a just man. And you were wrong in taunting me with my defenseless condition, and in saying that I might be accused or put to death or boxed on the ears with impunity. For I may repeat once more that to strike is worse than to be stricken, to do than to suffer. What I said then is now made fast in adamantine bonds. I myself know not the true nature of these things, but I know that no one can deny my words and not be ridiculous. To do wrong is the greatest of evils, and to suffer wrong is the next greatest evil. He who would avoid the last must be a ruler, or the friend of a ruler, and to be the friend he must be the equal of the ruler, and must also resemble him. Under his protection he will suffer no evil, but will he also do no evil? Nay, will he not rather do all the evil which he can and escape? And in this way the greatest of all evils will befall him. But this imitator of the tyrant, rejoins Callicles, will kill any one who does not similarly imitate him. Socrates replies that he is not deaf, and that he has heard that repeated many times, and can only reply that a bad man will kill a good one. Yes, and that is the provoking thing. Not provoking to a man of sense, 
who is not studying the arts which will preserve him from danger. And this, as you say, is the use of rhetoric in courts of justice. But how many other arts are there which also save men from death, and are yet quite humble in their pretensions, such as the art of swimming or the art of the pilot? Does not the pilot do men at least as much service as the rhetorician? And yet for the voyage from Aegina to Athens, he does not charge more than two obols, and when he disembarks is quite unassuming in his demeanour. The reason is that he is not certain whether he has done his passengers any good in saving them from death. If one of them is diseased in body, and still more, if he is diseased in mind, who can say? The engineer, too, will often save whole cities, and yet you despise him, and would not allow your son to marry his daughter, or his son to marry yours. But what reason is there in this? For if virtue only means the saving of life, whether your own or another's, you have no right to despise him or any practiser of saving arts. But is not virtue something different from saving and being saved? I would have you rather consider whether you ought not to disregard length of life and think only how you can live best, leaving all besides to the will of heaven, for you must not expect to have influence either with the Athenian Demos or with Demos the son of Pyrilampes, unless you become like them. What do you say to this? There is some truth in what you are saying, but I do not entirely believe you. That is because you are in love with Demos. But let us have a little more conversation. You remember the two processes, one which was directed to pleasure, the other which was directed to making men as good as possible. And those who have the care of the city should make the citizens as good as possible. But who would undertake a public building if he had never had a teacher of the art of building? and had never constructed a building before? Or who would undertake the duty of state physician if he had never cured either himself or anyone else? Should we not examine him before we entrusted him with the office? And as Callicles is about to enter public life, should we not examine him? Whom has he made better? For we have already admitted that this is the statesman's proper business and we must ask the same question about Pericles, and Cimon, and Miltiades, and Themistocles. Whom did they make better? Nay, did not Pericles make the citizens worse? For he gave them pay, and at first he was very popular with them, but at last they condemned him to death. Yet surely he would be a bad tamer of animals, who, having received them gentle, taught them to kick and butt and man is an animal, and Pericles, who had the charge of man, only made him wilder, and more savage, and unjust, and therefore he could not have been a good statesman. The same tale might be repeated about Cimon, Themistocles, Miltiades. But the charioteer who keeps his seat at first is not thrown out when he gains greater experience and skill. The inference is, that the statesmen of a past age were no better than those of our own. They may have been cleverer constructors of docks and harbours, but they did not improve the character of the citizens. I have told you again and again, 
and I purposely use the same images, that the soul, like the body, may be treated in two ways. There is the meaner and the higher art. You seem to understand what I said at the time, but when I asked you who were the really good statesmen, you answer, as if I asked you who were the good trainers, and you answered, Thierion, the baker, Mythoecus, the author of the Sicilian cookery book, Sarambus, the vintner. And you would be affronted if I told you that these are a parcel of cooks, who make men fat only to make them thin, and those whom they have fattened applaud them, instead of finding fault with them, and lay the blame of their subsequent disorders on their physicians. In this respect, Callicles, you are like them. You applaud the statesmen of old, who pandered to the vices of the citizens, and filled the city with docks and harbors, but neglected virtue and justice. And when the fit of illness comes, the citizens who in like manner applauded Themistocles, Pericles, and others, will lay hold of you and my friend Alcibiades, and you will suffer for the misdeeds of your predecessors. The old story is always being repeated. After all his services, the ungrateful city banished him, or condemned him to death. As if the statesman should not have taught the city better. He surely cannot blame the state for having unjustly used him, any more than the sophist or teacher can find fault with his pupils if they cheat him. And the sophist and orator are in the same case. Although you admire rhetoric and despise sophistic, whereas sophistic is really the higher of the two, the teacher of the arts takes money, but the teacher of virtue or politics takes no money, because this is the only kind of service which makes the disciple desirous of requiting his teacher. Socrates concludes by finally asking, to which of the two modes of serving the state Callicles invites him? To the inferior and ministerial one is the ingenuous reply that is the only way of avoiding death replies socrates and he has heard often enough and would rather not hear again that the bad man will kill the good but he thinks that such a fate is very likely reserved for him because he remarks that he is the only person who teaches the true art of politics and very probably as in the case which he described to Paulus, he may be the physician who is tried by a jury of children. He cannot say that he has procured the citizens any pleasure, and if anyone charges him with perplexing them, or with reviling their elders, he will not be able to make them understand that he has only been actuated by a desire for their good, and therefore there is no saying what his fate may be. And do you think that a man who is unable to help himself is in a good condition? Yes, Callicles, if he have the true self-help, which is never to have said or done any wrong to himself or others. If I had not this kind of self-help, I should be ashamed. But if I die for want of your flattering rhetoric, I shall die in peace. For death is no evil, but to go to the world below, laden with offences, is the worst of evils, in proof of which I will tell you a tale.
Under the rule of Kronos, men were judged on the day of their death, and when judgment had been given upon them, they departed, the good to the islands of the blessed, the bad to the house of vengeance. But as they were still living, and had their clothes on at the time when they were being judged, there was favoritism, and Zeus, when he came to the throne, was obliged to alter the mode of procedure and try them after death, having first sent down Prometheus to take away from them the foreknowledge of death. Minos, Radamanthus, and Iacus were appointed to be the judges, Radamanthus for Asia, Iacus for Europe, and Minos was to hold the court of appeal. Now death is the separation of soul and body, but after death soul and body alike retain their characteristics. The fat man, the dandy, the branded slave are all distinguishable. Some prince or potentate, perhaps even the great king himself, appears before Radamanthus, and he instantly detects him, though he knows not who he is. He sees the scars of perjury and iniquity, and sends him away to the house of torment. For there are two classes of souls who undergo punishment, the curable and the incurable. The curable are those who are benefited by their punishment. The incurable are such as Archelaus, who benefit others by becoming a warning to them. The latter class are generally kings and potentates. Meaner persons, happily for themselves, have not the same power of doing injustice. Sisyphus and Titius, not Thersites, are supposed by Homer to be undergoing everlasting punishment. Not that there is anything to prevent a great man from being a good one, as is shown by the famous example of Aristides, the son of Lysimachus. But to Radamanthus, the souls are only known as good or bad. They are stripped of their dignities and preferments. He dispatches the bad to Tartarus, labelled either as curable or incurable, and looks with love and admiration on the soul of some just one, whom he sends to the islands of the blessed. Similar is the practice of Iacus, and Minos overlooks them holding a golden scepter, as Odysseus in Homer saw him, wielding a scepter of gold and giving laws to the dead. My wish for myself and my fellow men is that we may present our souls undefiled to the judge in that day. My desire in life is to be able to meet death, and I exhort you and retort upon you the reproach which you cast upon me that you will stand before the judge, gaping and with dizzy brain, and any one may box you on the ear and do you all manner of evil. Perhaps you think that this is an old wife's fable, but you, who are the three wisest men in Hellas, have nothing better to say, and no one will ever show that to do is better than to suffer evil. A man should study to be and not merely to seem. If he is bad, he should become good, and avoid all flattery, whether of the many or of the few. Follow me, then, and if you are looked down upon, that will do you no harm. 
and when we have practised virtue, we will betake ourselves to politics, but not until we are delivered from the shameful state of ignorance and uncertainty in which we are at present. Let us follow in the way of virtue and justice, and not in the way to which you, Callicles, invite us, for that way is nothing worth. End of part two. Recording by Kevin Johnson.